Welcome to the Guitar Omni Podcast. I'm Carl Woolwind of Columbus Classical Guitar. Each episode, we'll chat with a featured guest from the classical guitar world. Candid conversations, unique experiences, and career observations from the people who best know the guitar. This is your masterclass in life and the guitar. For more information and past episodes, please visit columbusclassicalguitar.com or see Carl Woolwind Guitarist on Facebook. So I'm here with Alice Arzt, who's a bit of a living legend, if you ask me. I, I, I've known about her most of my life, and she's living in Princeton, New Jersey now, but has uh, toured all over the world and done all sorts of exciting guitar things. Alice, how are you? I'm okay. So I'm happy to have you. <laughs> so happy to have you here. So Thank you. what what have you been up to? What's 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 the guitar world look like? to you these days? Well, I don't know about the guitar world, but here I'm still teaching via Skype, of course. So I have to make sure that students can, you know, get a decent internet connection and so forth. So I'm still doing that. And then we're dealing with all sorts of various other things that, you know, friends who are ill, one who, who died, my husband's got all sorts of issues that he's been dealing with that are very complicated. And and some of our own health issues too. Uh, so um, I, I won't get into the, the <laughs> grimy details of that. But um, because of various things happening in the basement and a new water heater and so forth back in May, there were boxes of heavy stuff around in places where you didn't expect them. And I ran into one of them and did a sort of a somersault over it, broke oh. my femur, which I do not recommend to anyone. Oh my. Because it really, really, really means you can't even try to put your toe on the ground oh for like two months. And I'm still wearing, uh, walking with a cane. And so that's still an issue. Um, but anyway, uh, hopefully <laughs> we're through at least most of them. And there's still more doctor's appointments and things oh to be had. But anyway. So um, are you doing all of your teaching via Skype now? Or oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. 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 In fact, because the computer that I'm, I'm using is up here and Bruce's computer is back that way. Um, he decided that he'd better move back down into my teaching room for <laughs> also all his stuff is piled on top of my stuff down right. there <laughs> and he's very ensconced. So there's no way I could take a, a student at this point. There'd be no place for them to sit. Right. And, and he would have to do, you know, quite a lot of, you know, rearranging and, and dragging things around and, figuring out where to put stuff and so forth for me to be able to teach down there. So it's not going to happen anytime soon. When, when it happens, when, you know, things open up, then we will have to do major reshuffling of of objects. (laughs) And and (laughs) And how many many students are you teaching these days? Oh, golly. I, I would have to count. I don't know. It's probably (laughs) a dozen or more or something like that. Some of them are every other week. For some right. financial reasons, there are people who, sure. and then there's a couple of them who just decided they didn't want to do Skype, and they will right. presumably resume when they can come back 
And then there's one who does Skype, but who is keeps pestering me every year, every, every week, you know, please, you know, when are we going to, ah, I don't like this, <laughs> so forth. He spends like 20 minutes of his lesson complaining about Skype and, and, right. and getting set up because he's doing it and with some computer that he's not used to yeah. and it's down someplace <laughs> or other where he can't get organized and he comes Just, down and it doesn't work and he has all these issues. Sounds, so, sounds very familiar. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, that, that seems to be, yeah. yeah. Uh, musicians are not necessarily good with, with all sorts of you know, electronic stuff. Right. I remember back in Columbia University, there was one professor who used to always want to show us slides and videos and things like that. And he spent half of all of the classes on his hands and knees <laughs> and back of things, trying to figure out how to plug stuff in and complaining about how it wasn't working the way he wanted. So, you know, I guess this is a universal problem. <laughs> and it's probably been around with with every every bit of technology that gets churned out. I'm sure there's yeah. there's some of that that goes yeah. on, you know, the whole time. Yeah. Well, our our hi-fi room and everything is so complicated with all of Bruce's stuff that I I would I would be very hard pressed to try to figure out what to do. <laughs> and and it, it it used to be when I was all by myself in New York in the apartment before I was married. Um, I remember a friend who was a a BBC uh, guy, he came and stayed in my apartment and visited for a while. And he couldn't figure out, I was gone, I think at the time, uh, and he couldn't figure out how to play a record. He was desperate <laughs> to play a record. And he, he gave up on it. He couldn't figure out how to do it. So I guess my system there was just as complicated if you didn't well, know what it was. Well, you, the the funny thing about that is, is I think if you if you took somebody who was very young now that that would be very proficient with computer things and said you know here's here's an old analog stereo and a turntable and some some records you know the, the, many of them wouldn't know what to do. They with wouldn't record. know. <laughs> yeah, well, there's some video of some two kids, two teenagers trying to figure out how to get a telephone, an old fashioned telephone, <laughs> with a dial, and they're. They're, they're picking up the thing and putting it down and, and, you know, trying to figure out how they're supposed to get it to work. And they have no idea, clearly. <laughs> so we should just play guitar and be done with it, right? <laughs> yeah, I think so. Absolutely. So you're in, you're in Princeton, New Jersey now, and you, you have been for a while, right? But you used to live in New York. Yeah. Okay. yeah, I was in New York for many years. I mean, I grew up in the house that I'm in right now. That's amazing. And and so that's, you know, kind of familiar. And, and I think it's really handy because you sort of know what flooded and what didn't and what worked <laughs> and what didn't. And, you know, sure. you know the whole history of and when the roof went on and, you know, all this kind of stuff. So it's kind of useful. But, Plus the uh, comfort of all the, all the memories that you, yeah, that you have yeah. there, you know? So I was in that, of course, and until I moved to New York to study it. Columbia University Barnard College. And then I stayed in New York and had a couple of different apartments in different places. But I ended up on a nice one on Claremont Avenue. And uh, I was there for a long time. And- uh, Who did you study with at Columbia? Well, all sorts of different people. I mean, I, I just, I basically, I, I just got the regular degree. I didn't get any graduate, though I did take quite a lot of graduate classes. Right. But by that time, I was starting to to perform and 
and play and I was you know wanting a lot of practice time right so but you know there there were a whole batch of different professors and you know I studied with whoever was giving whatever class actually there's a funny story about that if you want a funny story absolutely there was a sort of an introduction to to music that people who weren't musical or you know had to had to take if they wanted to take some they had to take some cultural kind of thing there was a requirement and the professor was Hubert Doris and he you know he did his best with all these people and I had to take it because I had to take it even though I knew pretty much everything that was going to be said so I ended up kind of helping some of the other students you know, if they didn't understand something, they'd gravitate to me and I'd try to explain things to them. But anyway, at one point, this was toward the end of the semester and Doris came in and he said, now, is there anything that you don't ex understand for the final exam? I will, you know, ex you know, try to explain it to you. And this bimbo, excuse my language, <laughs> from down south somewhere said, Professor Doris, could you explain again the difference between a Monteverdi and a Madrigal? Oh my. <laughs> but he, I don't remember what the answer was, right. but I remember wow. sort of the smoke coming out of his head. <laughs> so that's the sort of person we had. In, in that class but anyway I, I, I taught music appreciation for many years I, I understand these kinds of questions yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I did test out of the elementary harmony and counterpoint thing so I didn't have to take the elementary harmony whatever it was right. um, I did have to take keyboard harmony and right. had to buy a piano so that I could do oh that gosh. and they had told me well it was a lousy Right. It was a really lousy upright piano. And in fact, a friend of mine had said, you know, when I finally got rid of it, and I sold it to somebody and they, he said, what? You actually got somebody to pay you money? <laughs> but anyway, because they had said, well, if you want to do keyboard harmony, but you want to do it on the guitar, that's fine. Okay. But of course, we do parallel chords and stuff all the right, time. Right. And I would have had to basically rewrite the whole book and try to explain it to them in words of one syllable. And I wasn't up for that. I figured it's easier to just get a piano and do whatever they tell you to do. At, at that time, was there a guitar teacher on faculty at Columbia? Oh, no, not at all. Yeah. So there still it, isn't. There wasn't at Juilliard either. Right. Juilliard yeah. didn't have, didn't have, and I was teaching there. Okay. In, you know, not at Juilliard, in, in New right. York City. And I remember one of my students who came from someplace pretty far away wanted to study at Juilliard. And right. so they went there to try to find out if they were going to ever get a guitar teacher. Yeah. And they came back to me with the quote from the head of Juilliard at the time. Well, if we could get that old guy, what's his name, Sagania, Sigoria, oh if we could get him, then we'd have a guitar department. <laughs> oh my. And I remember the, the teacher of Sergio Eduardo Abreu trying to wangle that she should be teaching there. Right. And it didn't happen. Right. I and think when, Sharon when has was, got when, it because she, Sharon has got it now. She, right. she knew people, she knew the guy who 
turned into the pet of Juilliard. So right. she had a personal relationship there. And that's how that finally, they got a guitar department. Right. But they, they didn't have it for a long, long, long yeah. time. So were you, at the time, were you permitted to have guitar as your primary instrument for study? Or did you have to study another instrument? Well, well, I was at Tom University. I studied musicology. That, that oh, was, okay. You know, okay. Music history stuff. It wasn't, they don't have any, you know, uh, actual, you know, you have an instrument, you're playing something, but that's right. not their their concern. And Got they it. were nice to me. They, they, you know, I was in the chorus there. Right. I did play the flute in high school in bands okay. and orchestras and things like that. But ironically, when I went to Barnard College, Eugenia Rich, who became Jeannie Zuckerman, was uh, there too. So guess who was the flutist? Uh -huh. So I figured, well, I better do something else. So <laughs> I wasn't going to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with her. So, because uh, it wasn't my instrument, really. I mean, it, it was okay, but nothing fancy. So I sang in the chorus, which had a very, very good uh, conductor. It was right. terrific. So that was very good experience. So I'm, I'm glad I did. But anyway. And so when did you start playing guitar? When I was about 12 and a half. But okay. for the first year or so, I didn't know what I was doing. I, <laughs> I you know, I, I, I had some, some guy who was at Princeton University, a graduate student, I think, I don't remember his name. And he gave me some lessons and taught me a few things. And I played some chords and sang some songs. And, okay. and then he taught me, you know, a few, you know, a few pieces like Spanish romance and right. stuff like that. And then I, I started going into New York when my parents drove me in to listen to guitar concerts of Scovia in England. And that hooked me. Uh -huh. I had to do that. That was, right. that was what I wanted to do. So then we found that there was a teacher in New York, Alexander Bella. Okay, of course, of, yeah. The, yeah. The, kind of the best one at the time, at least as far as I knew. And so I, I was driven in by my mother every, every probably I think it was maybe Tuesdays afternoon. Okay. We'd go in there and I'd have my lesson. And then there was a French pastry shop across the street. And we would get some pastries and eat them on the way back Fantastic. home again that was dinner <laughs> and that was that was a nice day so and my mother was very kind to to do all that she, right she, yeah I was an only child so I guess she could you know take the take the time and right. and do it and that was very lucky for me wow so and, and how old were you when you started studying with Alexander Bello probably 13 maybe okay. 13 and a half in there and you did that all through high school then yeah yeah absolutely yeah. And it was, yeah, was he just teaching there, privately? Yeah, he did, was teaching yeah. privately. Yeah, right. on 72nd Street. Yeah. Just lived in, it, it, in his apartment. Beg pardon? It just in, in his, his apartment. apartment. Yeah. 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 Do you, are there any other students of, of his that I would know at the time? Um, well, the, the best one at the time was a guy named Durant Robertson, but I believe okay. he died by now, and I don't know if he had much of a career. Um, then there's Bill Matthews okay, and he's still functioning. So he would be the other one that, that was a student of, of, of Bella at that right. time. And wow. I don't know if anybody else was. 
Bellow was good in that he made you feel that you were special, you were good, you could make it, you were terrific. Right, but right. then, of course, then I, I went and studied at the Bream Master class and found out that there were a lot of other people in the world who were very good, too. Right. And so um, I gradually sort of weaned myself away from Bellow. He was starting to compose pieces. And right. our lessons would end up with me, with my experience at Columbia University, sort of criticizing and commenting on his compositions. And I thought, really... My parents didn't need to be paying for lessons for me to give him lessons in college. <laughs> <laughs> so you, you continued to study with him after after you went to college? Yeah, I did yeah. for maybe a year or so. I, I okay. After that, I started to look around for other people that I could study with for at least a few lessons just to get an idea. Right. Uh, so I studied with a harpsichordist, whoever was the harpsichordist of the New York Pro Music at the time I okay. studied took a few lessons with him and and I remember actually when I first sort of went into his studio he said well I don't know how much I can help you because you know you guitarists can't play chords as one chord you always have to follow. and I said I don't and he said well you know but really you know I mean this was what he thought he thought we were like violinists you know so was that was because that's all the other guitarists do? <laughs> yeah. So anyway, so that showed you what was going on with the guitar world. Right. <laughs> I also took a couple lessons with, um, I'm trying to remember, Klaus Adam, I think it was, the cellist okay. of the New York Pro Musica or the, or the Julia Quartet. Okay. And I also took quite a lot of lessons with Suzanne Bloch, who okay. played the lute. She's yeah. the daughter of Ernst Bloch and quite right. a character. Wow. And she was a lot of fun to study with. And from her, of course, I learned all sorts of things about tablature and lute music and right. music history and things like that. So did you did you study lute with her or did you play guitar for those lessons? I, I played guitar for her. Okay. Yeah. But uh, I did borrow a lute at one point because uh, Juilliard wanted to do the opera Ormindo. Okay. And they had a lute part. And for shame, Juliet couldn't find anybody who could play the lute part, not on the guitar or on the lute or right. on anything else. Oh, my gosh. So they contacted her and said, can you find us somebody? And I was the person who got found. So I had to, I, I borrowed a single string Teorbo from her. Okay. And... Basically, we put all the music into tablature because, of course, that was tuned in G. I'm thinking in E. And, right. and you know, with a couple of weeks' notice, I wasn't going to get my whole head turned inside out and do that. <laughs> um, so, anyway, so I played the first lute part, and some guitarist from South America, someplace or other, played the, the second lute part, and somebody else played, you know, some other things. But, you know, I was playing the main lute stuff. Sure. And George Mester was the conductor at that time. Oh I think gosh. he was maybe assistant, somebody rather, you know, professor or something <laughs> at the time. But anyway, and I still remember that at one point he stopped the whole orchestra and said, somebody is playing a B flat. Who's playing a B flat? And I'm all sitting there innocent, you know. I was reading the tablature. I didn't know it was un right. you know, wrongly tabulated. So anyway, so then he started up again and I played what I played and it, I was the wrong note. 
<laughs> because I really, I, yeah, I was just reading the tablature because that was much easier to do with the tuning and, and already, you know, coping with an instrument that was fairly unfamiliar course, and yeah. different and all that kind of stuff. Well, I think it's really interesting that, that you, you went and, and purposely found musicians that weren't guitarists to study with. And, and well, sure, there, must have been, there must have been things about those particular teachers that, that you thought, I want to yeah, know. Well, I figured, you know, other musicians are, you know, they're good musicians. They got more of a history of, of you know, knowing what they're doing than guitarists did. Yeah. <laughs> and at the time, guitarists in New York were, you know, they really kind of didn't know what was going on as right. most most how, how did you how did you come along that or come come upon that did you were you just i mean do, was that accidental or was it was it really conscious well, i had or? my ears open i heard orchestras and yeah you know i mean i'd been interested in music my whole life my mother was very musical she played the piano she got a harpsichord at one point i don't remember exactly at what point yeah we still have it in the house though it's oh my gosh Ashra apparently have have failed it doesn't make noises most of the most of the notes don't work anymore apparently that's a problem with particular plectra that they they have the little finger you know yeah. little thing that comes out and those apparently come apart or fall apart or disintegrate after a certain period of time unfortunately yeah <laughs> but anyway but it worked up until maybe i don't know 10 15 years ago wow so which is logical Right. And then once I was really, you know, touring at all, then I met people. Right. Which was, you know, then that expanded my viewpoint very greatly. Um, that actually, um, I feel very, very lucky because all these things that really didn't have anything to do with anything just all conspired to do the right thing for me. For instance, my mother went to Smith College and she wanted to spend her junior year abroad. And even though she would have been a music major, otherwise she had to be a French major because that was the only way she was going to get to spend oh, her junior wow. year abroad okay. in France at the Sorbonne. Okay. So she knew French. And of course, before she was married, she taught French in a school for a little while. And then she got married. And at that point, of course, if you get married, then you, you don't do anything anymore. So there she is, a French teacher with one kid, me. So she figured, okay, I'm going to make this kid as bilingual as I can, you know. So she, we would have, you know, French breakfasts and French baths and French oh, this fun. and French that. And she spoke French to me quite a lot. And then when I was fairly young, uh, we, I'm sorry, I just clicked on something. When I was fairly young, again, about, I don't know, I think maybe maybe 11 or so, 11, 12, something like that, uh, pre-guitar pre anyway, um, she wanted to go back and visit her old haunts in, in Paris and stuff. So we went on one of the French boats, Ile de France, and, and went over there. And I was fascinated. I remember when we first landed at Le Havre, I'm, I'm listening outside the porthole to all these people out there speaking this secret language that my mother and I spoke and that nobody else knew. And, and so that was fun. And so that gave me an opportunity to try to, as much as possible, perfect my accent so that I sound I could fool French people for a short period of time until I make some stupid 
mistake or something, you know, into thinking that I'm I'm French, and because my mother's accent is not was not perfect. It was okay, but it wasn't perfect. So anyway, so that gave me that opportunity. So anyway, it meant that I was pretty darn good at French. Who knew that I needed to be very good in French because when Ida Presti and Alexandre Nagoya came and played in New York and I went backstage and my mother made me wait till the end of the line to talk to them because she knew I would take a while. She didn't want them piling up in back of me, mad at me for taking too long. And I said, you know, where could I study with you? And they said, well, we're going to be teaching up in Magog, Canada at the Jeunesse Musicale Camp. And so immediately we got me, you know, signed up for that. My parents drove me up and dropped me off and then picked me back up again. And because I spoke French, I really got to know Ida Presti much, much better than I would have otherwise. And then when they came to New York, I could translate for business meetings and things like that. And I really got to be almost almost like a second mother with her. I mean, she she really, she she first was calling me ma petite Alice, but then she figured out that I'm like five, six inches taller than she was. So she, ma grande Alice. And <laughs> so anyway, so that was lucky. And then at one point, Preston Lagoya came to New York and they were only gonna be at the airport for like a, a very short, a few hours. But I ran out to be with them anyway. And uh, that was when she said, well, this composer in England, John Duart has just sent me this very nice piece. I think you would enjoy playing it. This was the Catalan folk song variations. He had sent it to her to get the fingerings done for publication. So she gave me his address and she wrote him saying she, that I'm gonna write him and that he should send me a copy of the piece and he did. And then that was just before she died. So she couldn't do the fingerings. So Jack Duart contacted me, would you like to do the fingerings? So I checked with Lagoya if he would like to and he said, no, no, you do it. So I did. And that meant then I went to England the next summer or something like that, and met Jack Duart and got to know him. And he said, oh, you should make a London debut. You should do this. You should do oh that. Here's an agent. I'll contact him. You should do this and that and the other. So I got an international agent down a, and a British agent out of that. And the week I was there was the same week that Sergio and Eduardo came to London and they came with their father, Papai. Okay. Uh -huh. And Jack Duart always, anybody who came to London to do anything, he always invited them over to dinner. Even if he couldn't speak their language or anything like that, he always made sure wow. to get to know them. So he did. And since he said, well, the, the younger one doesn't, he met them at her, their hotel. He said, the younger one doesn't speak anything. The father waves his hands around and speaks Portuguese, <laughs> but the older one speaks some French. So come oh. and speak French to him and then we can communicate. Oh, wow. So I got invited to that. So I met Sergio Abreu, oh, who gosh. has become a very, very close friend since then. Oh. 
And Popeye, who is the wheeler dealer of the century, right. I mean, who else can get three trips to, to London from Brazil for his whole family and himself, you know? Yeah. Uh, I mean, apparently he was he was very active in the labor movement in, in Brazil back when or something. And he just knew everybody. So anyway, so he went back to Brazil and started to pester the Brazil Guitar Society people and said, you've got to bring this woman to oh, Brazil to play. And the oh Guitar gosh. Society guy, having a bee in his bonnet, went and sort of camped out on the doorstep of Mr. Forner, who was the cultural affairs officer at the time, and just <laughs> kept after him until finally in like, they said something like June, he figured he had some money left over and let's get this guy out of my hair. So, okay. <laughs> so, <laughs> so then they contacted, you know, me or Washington or whatever, any of the state department. And that's how I started doing all the state department tours all over the place. And that's Amazing. a lot of all my international stuff is because of that. Wow. And, and how that's kind of how, what, what, how old were you when that, when that got started? I don't know, 30 maybe. Okay. Something like that. Yeah. And had, yeah. had you done a lot of concertizing before that? Well, I started, I did my London debut in 1969. Okay. And that was, you know, I, I, that was sort of my big official debut. I had played some concerts in the United States. Okay. And, okay. and there were guitar societies around. So I was touring around the United States too. Right. But, um, you know, I, I was at the beginning of my career. Yeah. I also actually being in London at that time and knowing Sarah and Eduardo, I'm just remembering another connection that um, I'm trying to remember his name, the, the head of CBS Artists and Repertoire was over there in London at the time that I was there because of Sarah and Eduardo, because they were making a record for CBS. They'd made one for okay. Ace of Diamonds which I was there at the recording session. And then he was working on getting them to make a, a CBS record. Right. And so he came to my concert in London, the debut concert, I think it was yeah. probably, um, maybe the second one. I did one in like February and one another one in the fall. So I'm not okay. entirely certain. I think it was the, the early one. But anyway, he came to that and he, he you know, came back and said, well, you know, I, I don't think CBS wants another guitarist, but there's some guy here in London who's starting up a new record company who's a friend of mine. He's really good. So you should go with them and I'll tell him to take you so that he did. So that, wow. that got me my first recording. Okay. And so that, that worked out too. So, you know, <laughs> that I'd made a record in London pretty early on and had something to wave around. How, how long so, were you in London? Uh, well, various different times, various. Okay, so you're. Going I've back been there a lot. Right. And I, I have a very good friend who's still there. The person who did my, uh, who was the producer, of pretty much all of my records. Well, I think yeah, all of my records that were made in England, which was most of them, all but two or three, I think. Um, he that he was a, a guy named um, Johnson. Um, I'm trying to remember. <laughs> I'm terrible for names. I've always been terrible for names. Arthur Johnson. Okay. And he used a pseudonym on the record because he was a BBC producer too, and he wasn't supposed to, you know, do right. things like 
records, but he did anyway. Yeah. So Arthur was, he was the best producer in the world. Uh, he, he died by now, but he was just fabulous. And I got to know him and he, he was just so good. He was so perfectionist and so fussy about details right. and so good at editing and so forth. Anyway, and a very fine musician too. So he would know exactly how much space to put in between the, the pieces and all this kind of thing. But anyway, so I got to know him and then I got to know his wife, who's Angela Brownridge, who's a wonderful, wonderful, super top-notch pianist okay. who's still touring. So wow. he died, but she's still going. And I, I don't know how, but anyway, she's still <laughs> doing it, making records and everything. So anyway, so I got to know them and I ended up staying at their house quite a lot. Okay. And so the, you, were, you were going back and forth between the, the states. I was, I was in London quite a lot, yeah. yeah. And when I stayed at their house, I stayed in the room that was right over the room that had her piano in. Oh, fantastic. And what I tell people <laughs> is she, she had been a child protege and yeah. then studied with somebody in Italy who I think studied with Liszt or something like that. Oh, I don't my. know, but anyway... She just amazing pianist, and she does these big Rachmaninoff stuff, you know. And she's, <laughs> you know, not tall or you know, but boy, I tell you, she's got muscles. But I, I would remember because I was sleeping late in those days too, because I was always a night owl. And so here I am, I'm in bed, and I hear maybe the the jangle jangle of the spoon and the coffee cup going into <laughs> that room, and then I hear. <laughs> you know, like fortissimo, like yeah. the bed rises off the floor. It's really so with no warm up, you know, nothing, just right in, you know, cold, cold, cold. Yeah. I mean, they all they they say, oh, we made the house specially warm for you. Yeah, well, so fifty five maybe if you're lucky, oh with gosh, a little man. postage stamp like a. You know, lady, right underneath the leaky window that the cold winds are coming through, you know. But anyway, I did stay in hotels and things too, but I did stay in their house quite a lot. Amazing. So so you, you, you were doing all that activity in London, working with, with Jack Duart and all of that. Started doing the, the tours through the, the State Department. Yeah, and, how, and through how the did... agent that was in England, and in, okay. uh, in Holland too. There was an agent in Holland that was sort of connected. So I was playing uh, quite a lot in Europe. That wasn't yeah. State Department mostly. Right. The okay. State Department was all the weird, you know, Vietnam <laughs> stuff. Oh my gosh. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I played in Vietnam. <laughs> oh and my. Thailand and, and Taipei, of course, the Sun Yat Sen Memorial Hall in Taipei is wonderful. Wow. Oh my and gosh. Hong Kong, I loved Hong Kong. Were, and were then there South any America. other American guitarists doing that at the time? Uh, not really, no. Yeah. I kind of Oh it, my I gosh. Yeah. Wow. And then I think Japan wasn't State Department. That was Shiro Rai, who I met because I knew Rose Augustine, and he right. was, you know, there a lot of the time. So, so he he did that. Um, but Korea was State Department, I'm pretty sure. And then New Zealand, of course, and Australia. The first times I went there, that was, I'm pretty sure, was State Department. Wow. And all, you know, different places in Africa, South Africa. I played right. there a couple of times. And, 
once once as a duo and once as a solo. Who were we playing duos with? Well, I was playing duos with a couple different people. Um, I started out basically. I started out just doing solos, and then I thought this this could be fun. And um, trying to think who the first person was, probably Wolfgang Weigel. Okay. German guitarist, I think maybe. I played duos with him for a while, and that was a lot of fun. But he tended to be kind of flamboyant and wanting to sort of improvise. And I kept trying to pin him down, which was a big mistake. I figured that out just about toward the end of our playing, that I, I should have just been letting him do whatever he wanted to do, and I just make sure I knew my part well and follow. Right. <laughs> but anyway, but he, he was fun. And then uh, I also, the agent of a trio in Switzerland came to New York and I have no idea why they latched on to me, but they came and they said, here's this trio in Switzerland and they're losing one of their members and they want you to play the part that the other guy, you know, played. And that was, um, you know, Michel Rucho. Okay. Who's, who's still, you know, doing good stuff. And then I'm trying to remember his name, another guy uh, who's very good too. And so he, he convinced me and I figured, well, I'm going to be in Switzerland anyway, fairly shortly. So, you know, at worst, I'll learn these parts. They'll be not so good. I'll be good. At, you know, they pay me. It's not a big deal. And then we we got together, we did a little rehearsal, we did our first concert and we taped it and listened to it in the car coming back. And we were all like, hey, this is pretty good. You know, this is really good. We should, we should keep doing this. Yeah. So we did, but of course a trio that's, you know, two Swiss guys and American, that's, you right. know, a little bit, the logistics are not yeah. terribly favorable. But um, then when, I, I went home, I, I sort of had the bug of doing duos and that's a fun thing. And then I, I thought, well, I should try to find somebody in the United States, you know, this would work better. And I found a lady in Boston who shall remain nameless because she was the prima donna of the first order and a real pain in the neck. But at any rate, um, I, I started doing duos with her because she played very well as a soloist. What I didn't realize was as many guitarists, she couldn't, you know, couldn't play as an ensemble. She right. didn't, couldn't really be detail-y about rubatos or about, sure. you know, rhythms or even, I remember one, one thing, we were playing some Charlie Chaplin music okay. and the piece of dum da dum dum da dum dum da da dum da dum bum ba dum dum da dum dum da 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 Okay, you think she could get the yeah, da, da, da. No, she'd do yum, di, dum, da, or something like that. <laughs> and I worked and worked and worked to try to get that that way. And it never really, you know, but we did do some touring. We were in, actually in Switzerland at one point playing for a, a radio there. Okay. And she, as I said, she thought she knew everything. And, you know, she kind of didn't. So anyway, in this recording session, I shouldn't tell this story, but anyway, our oh, agent was in the control room. So he heard what the what the guys who were doing the recording were, you know. And when we finally finished, 
you know, I mean, when she first sat down, the, the red light was going, oh, we got to start. You know, I said, you can relax. You know, you don't have to start right exactly when the light goes on. Oh, but they're wasting tape. I said, they've got lots of tape. It's okay. You know, but anyway, after this whole experience, apparently, uh, you know, at, at the end of the session, she sort of bounced out of her chair. Ah, now we're through. We can go have some ice cream. And apparently one of the one of the guys in the control room through gritted teeth said, better she should have a lollipop. Oh my. <laughs> and the agent, the agent told me the story, probably didn't tell her. But anyway, that meant that then when I was, you know, we had already scheduled a, a South African tour. Okay. And with her. And at that point, I then did another concert in Texas. And by that time, I would have like yelled and run the other direction if she even walked into the room. So I told my agent, it cannot be. You know, I've got to, I, I, I toured with the other guy whose name I can't remember uh, from the trio. Okay. And I told my agent, you just got to cancel it out and, and, and get me that I can go with someone wow. else. And she That's a nice agent. That's a very nice thing. agent. <laughs> yes. Well, she she told them that this lady was pregnant and couldn't come, and we were going to give a substitute, and it worked. You know, I mean, what, what are they going to say? Oh, you fantastic! Know? So oh it was gosh. a brilliant move on her part, and the only thing that would mess it up was if this lady would have had a career and then ended up in South Africa at some point. They say, "How's the kid?" You know, then it would have been a problem. But fortunately, it didn't happen. So. Oh, that's amazing! That's incredible. So, so did anyway, you did you so, tour with her at all? Well, yeah, I did tour did. in in, okay. in Europe some, and then around the United States a little bit. It, and you know, forgive my my ignorance, but I, I like, I, I'm thinking a, a guitar duo of two women at the time was probably a rarity. Well, maybe I didn't really think of it. <laughs> I mean, I just I, I thought of myself as a person. I mean, yeah. the, <laughs> I I remember Sharon Isbin going off on well, being a woman and the only sure, woman, sure, sure, and, sure. you know, all this stuff, you know. <laughs> and I remember Leona Boyd was in New York at one point, and I had taught her in some classes, and I knew her pretty well. And somebody had said we have to go over to Sharon's house to to try out her her guitar that was a new guitar that you know that somebody wanted Leona to see or something. Right. And so we did, and we made a pact beforehand that we were going to do nothing but talk about other woman guitarists the whole time. Nice. We did. And we did. I don't know if Sharon picked up on it, but anyway, huh. that's what we did. <laughs> because, I mean, I'd studied with Edith Presti for Right, sense. of course. Of course. Louise Walker was you know, very much an item. And Mar Louise Anido, I met her in, in South America. She was did, very did, did you know Louise Walker? I did not, no. Okay. No, though I think I met her daughter. I'm trying okay. to remember. I'm, I'm, she had a daughter who plays the guitar too. She, she's I'm somebody terrible who's for very me. interesting to me. And, and I, I, mm -hmm. I, I think there's this whole kind of, you know, Southern German, Central European guitar scene that, uh, that we don't know a whole lot about. And I think there was a lot, of, a lot of really good things happening there for quite some time. Well, the thing with women in the guitar is that's who played guitars in the 19th century. Right, right, you right. You know, that was a woman's instrument. You see yeah. guitars all over the place. In fact, my great-grandmother played the guitar and I really? had her guitar. 
And apparently that's how my great-grandfather met her. That he was walking past the house and heard guitar music coming out or songs, probably she was playing chords and songs, you know. And he was entranced. And he went around to find somebody who knew the family because so he could be introduced because you didn't just. And, and where was this? Somebody. And he did. And then they fell in love. And that's, it, you know. Where was this? Uh, would have been in Ohio, I think, as far as Ooh. I know. I don't know for sure. Oh, my gosh. But a lot of my mother's family came from Ohio. Okay. I mean, they came from, you know, actually from uh, mostly, you, uh, you know, England. Scotland, Ireland, okay. and all those places. Yeah, but, and, and, and you still have you still have her guitar. I have the guitar. Somebody gave it to me. I can't remember who, because they figured I ought to have it, which I should. So do you know, know who made the cool. guitar or where it comes from or anything like that? Um, yeah. it's it's, I mean, it's yeah. I I I could go look and see who made it. <laughs> it's it's one of these little guitars. It's like the ones that you see in pictures. Okay. You know. And I, at one point, I think it has a few cracks and things, and I was thinking of getting it restored, and I asked somebody who would do that work, you know, what would it be worth right. if, you know, if it got restored? He said, well, it'd be worth whatever the cost of restoring it would be. <laughs> In other words, it's nothing very right. special. But um, it's a cute little guitar, and it's kind of nice to have. Ah, that's so, tremendous. So anyway. So That's yeah, a lot of women were playing guitars and and, yeah. and actually in the Presti Lagoya classes there were a lot of women too. Right. Okay. And Akoito was one of the best. And ah. she was Japanese, married, yeah. eventually married to Aki Doini. Um so anyway. Um so I'm I I just you know, I haven't really ever been on the, you know, women in the guitar kind of sure. thing because it didn't seem to be an issue because they've always been playing lots yeah. of... Did, did it start to become an issue, do you think? Or was it just something that, that it's the nowadays... Okay. It's nowadays everybody's just yeah. thinking about it, I think. Right. Um, and, and maybe I was just lucky enough not to have to worry about it. Right. You know? But anyway, and, and you know, of course, there were people who said, ah, we hired you specifically because we were tired of guys in penguin suits coming and playing and we wanted somebody to wear nice dress. Oh, fantastic. But of course, presumably they wouldn't say, oh, we didn't hire you because you're a woman and you probably can't play, which probably happened too, but I wasn't, I wasn't very aware of it. Right. So, you know, who knew? Um, oh my gosh. So, uh, you know, but anyway, I just... I, you know, I accepted what I got and I, I got a pretty, yeah. pretty, you know, remarkable career about it. And, and, you know, a lot of funny stories about all the, right. all the crazy things. Like <laughs> one of, one of my favorites, if I can remember the sequences, when I was in Frankfurt and I needed to play in Stuttgart the next day. Okay. And I could have just taken a train or something but I had a sort of an open-ended plane fare thing that basically was there for the, for the, you know, didn't cost me anything. Right. So in the early morning, I get out to the Frankfurt airport to get my plane to Stuttgart to get there with plenty of time to get the hotel and so forth. So, okay. And so I'm waiting in the waiting room and then I go out to the plane and I get on the plane 
and I, you know, we start flying, we fly for an hour or whatever it was, and you know, and then they say, ladies and gentlemen, we regret to inform you there is a snow condition in Stuttgart and we cannot land our plane. We're going back to Frankfurt. Oh no. Okay. So I'm back in Frankfurt by around noon or one o'clock or something like that. But no problem, ladies and gentlemen, it's not a problem because there's going to be another plane leaving very soon. It's smaller than the previous plane. It will easily land in the situation where the previous plane couldn't land. Okay, so I'm sitting there. I wait, go out to the plane. And it was a smaller plane. And of course that meant that it had its own passengers and then all the passengers of the bigger plane that wanted to get on. So guess who didn't get on? (laughs) My suitcase got on, but not me and not the guitar. So there I am pulling my heels in Frankfurt again. (laughs) And then, (laughs) then let's see what happened next. Yeah, then the next plane that went that I think I did get on with my with my guitar and everything. That couldn't land because the previous smaller plane had tried to land in the snow condition, had slid around and blocked the runway. Oh my gosh. So my suitcase was on the plane that was blocking the runway and <laughs> I was on the plane that couldn't land because there was no way of landing at that point. So I'm back in Frankfurt again. And by this time, it's like, you know, four wow. or five in the afternoon. And there was a businessman who was there and he said, I am supposed to be, you know, bidding on some contract for satellite, something or other in, oh in Stuttgart. I'm, I'm gonna be a dead duck if I don't get there pretty darn soon. I'm gonna rent a car. I mean, he, we all knew each other by that yeah. time. If you wanna come <laughs> along, come along, I'll drive you <laughs> to Stuttgart. So he did on those Autobahns, you know, you go 150 oh miles an hour. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, he got me to Stuttgart about maybe, I don't know, half an hour before my concert was going to be. Oh, wow. And dropped me off someplace or other where I could get a taxi, which I got. Went straight to the concert hall. And I had tried to notify the plane people to deliver my suitcase to the concert oh, hall gosh. also. And that got to the concert hall about five minutes before I had to go on. Oh, wow. So I got on my dress, I got <laughs> on, I played. And the, the thing, the topper that just entranced my mother is the review of that concert. Okay. Said something about, it was as though a Christmas angel had come down to entertain me. It was so lovely. <laughs> And she she said, if they only knew what that Christmas angel went through to get there, they wouldn't have written it quite that way. Wow. So anyway, so that was kind of the most hair-raising of my my various stories. (laughs) My mother was saying I should write a book about, you know, you can't get there from here. Because she she had that experience. I remember being with her in, in France at some part when I was very young. And we wanted to go from wherever we were to someplace else. And she was trying to figure out how to do it on buses and things like that and trains or whatever. And she went to the Syndicat d'Initiative to find out. And they told her, you can't get there from from here. (laughs) 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 What are you supposed to do? (laughs) 
So anyway, wow. so that That's, was. So uh, did, did the concert start on time? Yeah. Amazing. Did. Amazing. They, it started they, on time. That's, that's I had my guitar a, a with me. I was right hanging there. on to yeah. that. I mean, at one point when when I was, uh, I think, where was it? I was coming back from Colombia, I think. And I, my suitcase didn't come, didn't come, didn't come, didn't come. And I was complaining to them. And they said, but you have your guitar. I said, well, I was hanging on to that. Right. And they said, well, that should have been in the baggage. I said, what, you want me to lost that also? You know, this was, I think, in Puerto Rico. Uh, I'd come from Colombia to Puerto Rico and eventually somebody who knew some of the customs people who was one of the concert organizers went back and figured out where my suitcase was and, and wow. managed to find it. But um, I've had a lot of that kind of thing. I, sure. uh, in Alexandria, Egypt, I played a concert wearing a galabia, a sort of a, you know, I went out to the market and I bought this thing because my suitcase was in Athens. Oh and in fact, I saw it on the tarmac as the plane went by. It's sitting there on the tarmac, not in the plane. And it took him another several days before I got my suitcase. So I didn't have anything to wear other than I was in with blue jeans and a, you know, a sweater or something at the time. So I had to do something to look a little bit more festive, shall we say. So that happened in Oregon too, actually, that my suitcase was not there. And I there I just played with the blue jeans and the and the red sweater that I had on, and the the kids all loved it. It was for university or something, and I was dressed just the way they were. Right, and sure. They just thought that was real cool, but uh, <laughs> yeah. So you know, I, I've had a lot of weird experiences. So you you sounds like you played all over everywhere. Was there was there any some place that you wanted to play that you didn't? Well, I never played in 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 the USSR. Of course. Mainly, I, I, I would have, but they offered me like, you know, so uh, the, the fee they offered, they, they said, we'll pay your transportation from like Frankfurt and we'll pay you like what was going to be like 50 bucks for like a month worth of concert or something. And, and it just didn't seem very practical. Right. <laughs> so I, Interesting yeah. that you got the invite, though. I mean, that's that's yeah, I got the invite and I don't remember what it was. Yeah, I, I played some Eastern European places. I haven't played, but um, I've, I've played an awful lot of places. So I missed mainland China. I missed the USSR. Um, I think there's at least one. I think I never played in Chile. And I okay. never played in one of the Guyanas. I've forgotten okay. which one it is, but one of them I didn't play in. Wow. Um, I didn't play in North Korea. I did play in South right. Korea. Um, let's see. Well, I, I didn't play in Ukraine as far as I can remember. I'm pretty sure okay. I did. I played all right. over the place in Yugoslavia and in okay. you know, Hungary also. And. Uh, well, Hungary reminds me of a story that a friend of mine told. Uh, they had a big festival in Estergom. This was probably the, the, the main place where guitar stuff was happening. Because I remember early on, the first few festivals, anybody from Eastern Europe or from Russia who was there, they were there with their cameras taking pictures of the music that we had because they couldn't get it. So they were taking photographs of our music and, and very eagerly so that they would get these pieces that they, they couldn't play. But anyway, that was 
you know, early on in, in Estergum, um, there was a big, big cathedral with a reverberation time of about five minutes where we played concerts of, you know, several, you know, several people in a row. You'd have like three people playing a concert each, playing maybe 25 minutes or 30 minutes worth of concert. And then they farmed us out to different castles and things around in the, you know, in, in Hungary. So you'd get into a minibus with the other two acts or, you know, people or duos or whatever they were. And then you'd be driven to wherever. And my friend, Neil Smith from England, who was at some of these things too, he told a story that at one point, here he's driving along to go to his concert and suddenly there's a huge traffic jam out in the middle of nowhere. And everybody's just sitting there on the, on the highway, not able to move. And, and you know, no, no news about what was going on. And then he heard in the distance a sort of a, a mechanical noise coming closer and closer. And it was a whole column of Russian tanks. The Hungarians hated the Russians. This whole column of tanks going across, you know, a field and then onto the road and then across the road and off into the wilderness. And they had to wait. All the cars had to wait on this highway. And he was worried about, you know, is he going to get to his concert in time and so forth. So this it took a while to, for them all to pass, but finally they did. And then all the cars could go again. He gets into his concert. He's the first person on the program. And he goes out and he notices there's a big plate glass window in the back of the hall. So he can see out in the back backyard or whatever of the, of the courtyard of the, of the castle. And he sees all those tanks that are there. And the first two rows of the audience are all the soldiers from the tanks. They were wow. rushing to get to his concert. <laughs> and nearly made him late for it as a result. And what that kind of endears me to the Russians because I can't envision American soldiers in tanks rushing to get to a guitar concert. To, to a guitar concert. <laughs> Let's take the, the tanks, Russian, it'll be faster. <laughs> the Russian, they wanted to go to his concert. What and a thing. Did. Oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, you know, the, the guitar works works magic everywhere, I think. That's it fantastic. Does. <laughs> so at the time when you when when you were traveling all over the world doing all these concerts and everything, like you must have been gone all the time. I, mean, I was gone a lot. Yes. Yeah. I was. Yeah. And how many how many years did you did you work like like that? Well, uh, right, pretty much right after 1969, I started okay. doing it, and I only really I started doing a few duos and things in the very early 90s. Wow. I pretty much stopped doing solo concerts around then. Okay. And then duo and trio concerts sort of mid nineties, I guess, something like okay. that. Okay. And, and was like it that. just, you wanted to be home more? You getting tired? <laughs> well, was I was a little tired of all the touring. Yeah. And basically I, I sort of stopped doing the solos and was doing duos and trios and things like that. 
And oh, I ended up, by the way, the, the trio ended up morphing into me, Michelle Rucho, and Ray Burley from England. Okay, and yeah. And that's kind of the final version of the trio because this other guy then decided he didn't want to tour so much. Mm-hmm. And so, and Ray was kind of a little bit similar. In other words, very good, very solid, very regular, you know, good musician, not flamboyant or eccentric or anything like that. That was sort of Michelle a little bit. And then I was the, the, the you know, the little bit better known soloist kind of thing that had the name on the trio and so forth. And so that that worked out pretty well. And that's that's the version of the trio that we made the CD with. Okay. So, um, yeah, so... It was, it was that then, I mean, that logistically, a guy from Switzerland, a guy from the sure. UK and an American, you know, it cost a lot of money just to rehearse. Right. <laughs> and so doing that, and then I, I tried to do duos with uh, Paolo Martelli from, from okay. uh, Brazil. And that worked very well. I mean, he, musically, we, we saw eye to eye. We hardly even had to rehearse because we really... You know, knew what the other one was going to do, and it worked very well. But Paolo was doing his own thing, and you know, uh, things would happen. Like I remember one time he said, "Oh, we got to rehearse. So let's let's get together on Monday." And so then on Monday I call him up, and his girlfriend's there, and she says, "Oh, well, he left for Brazil last night." <laughs> I said, "Oh, shucks. If I would have known, I would have sent some stuff down to Sergio. You know, sure. by by." courier as it were so he was he was doing a lot of his own stuff right you know and so that didn't that kind of pooed out and then we got a third person who sort of didn't work he didn't figure out you know he he ended up in 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 Canada at one point with you know no no dress shoes just sneakers and dungarees and you know (laughs) to to get him to look sort of you know, like a trio member on the stage. Or something like that. <laughs> so, you know, it, it just sort of very gradually, the duos and trios just kind of, I pooed out on them. Yeah. And it was always my name in front of all this stuff. And my agent was saying, hey, you know, um, you know, I, I keep trying to sell this thing, but you know, you got to figure out what sure. you're doing kind of thing. So I just sort of gave up on it at that point. By that time I met Bruce and we were getting married and settling down a little bit more. And he had his career with doing film shows and, and lots, okay. you know, so quite a lot of stuff involved. So I ended up the guy who, who goes around in circles in New York uh, looking for a parking place while somebody's lugging heavy stuff into a, a <laughs> hall of some sort. So that was that. And was how did you meet him? Through Charlie Chaplin. Oh my gosh. Because I was very interested in Charlie Chaplin and I was kind of fanatic for Charlie Chaplin. And I noticed that there was a discrepancy in one of the films between two different versions. So I went down to the Killiam Show's office and I questioned the guy, like, how come there are two versions? And he wasn't particularly interested in that, and I was also interested in Chaplin's music because he composed a lot of it. And so I, I figured out to, to get a, a friend to, to do some arrangements for two guitars of some of that stuff. So I told him about what I was doing and I questioned him about the music. And then a little bit later, he 
he hired Bruce, who has a whole history, his whole family, they're all cameramen from way back when in the silent days. Um, great grandfather, grandfather, uncle, et cetera, et cetera. And on the other side, even grandfather, I believe. So anyway, um, so they hired him. So, and then the guy who was in charge who'd met me said, oh, there's this fanatic crazy woman who's playing chaplain music and laughing about, you know, about uh, this particular chaplain film. So Bruce actually did the research to figure out what was going on with the two versions of that thing. And then at that point in New York, I had these sort of soirees and I'd invite friends over and we'd play, you know, Chaplin movies on, on TV. Uh, I mean, on a TV, you know, from videos. And so Bruce came to one of those things and then we, we really hit it off. So it was Charlie who brought us together. Fantastic. Oh my gosh, that's great. Yeah. <laughs> and, and at that point, I mean, I was still doing some touring. And if you want another funny story, I, I, I have getting from, Absolutely. Okay. From, uh, I think it was Korea to New Zealand. And the way I had to fly to do that was I had two round trip tickets from New York to California to uh, Korea, to California, to New York, and then New York to California, to New Zealand, to California, to New York. Oh my gosh. And so, because that was the way it worked to get, you know, not paying through the nose or something like that. So to get to New Zealand, I had to fly from Korea to California, switch to go fly from California to California, from Los Angeles to San Francisco or something like that, and then fly to New Zealand that way. So it was gonna be a long haul across the Pacific two different times. But anyway, the concert at, in Korea just before the night before I left, they had this wonderful buffet fancy thing after my concert. And I ate a lot of it and something wasn't good in it. I don't oh, no. know what. Oh no. So the next morning I'm feeling pretty not so good. But I gotta get to the airport. So I get to the airport. <laughs> I'm hanging on for dear life as best as I can. I threw up on the floor in front of the customs person. Oh leaving. no. <laughs> one of the one of the people there managed to go get me some sulfasuxidine to take a pill. But I'm feeling like death warmed over. I get into the plane. I say, please don't bother me. You know, and I passed out. So next thing they're shaking me, we're in, we're in Los Angeles. Okay, I get up, I get my stuff. I get over to the, where I have to get to, to go to the next plane. Get on the plane, please don't bother me. I'm still <laughs> feeling terrible. Okay, and we're in San Francisco. Okay, get up, get in line, get on to the next place. Please don't bother me and passed out again. Next thing, we're going to be landing in New Zealand very soon. You know, oh so basically I was the whole time. for the whole time. <laughs> and by the time I was, they were starting to think about landing in New Zealand, I could have a little tea and I was starting to feel a little better. And by the time I got off the plane, I'm pretty much okay. Wow. <laughs> so anyway, so that was kind of painless. I say, if you want to do such a trip, just right. eat something bad before. 
then you won't know you're even doing it. <laughs> You'll be there before you find out. Oh my gosh. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Amazing. So, so anyway. Can we can we talk about some of your teaching too? Well, sure, if you want to. I mean, oh. I'm I'm not teaching any I, I have some very talented students, but I don't have the sort of students I would have if I were in a university probably. I mean, right. But, but over the years, are, I mean, you've, you've taught quite a few people. Over the years, yes, I yeah. have. Yeah. I have taught several people. Um, Bob Trent is one of them. He's in, yes. uh, yeah. And and he, he was my student for quite a while. Did and, he grow up in, in that area? Is that how that happened? I, I think so, I guess. Yeah, so. Okay. I really kind of don't remember. He was one of the people that I left some of my students to when I would be away. Oh, okay. Right. And then... Yeah, and then there's several people whose names I can't remember anymore, of course, <laughs> because being me, I can hardly remember my own name. I've always been bad at names. I have that, that same That problem. has come to haunt me a lot. Yeah. I mean, I, you want another story about that? Yes, of course. Story on me. I, I, when I was in Africa, in the Sudan, I believe it was, um, I, I played a concert there and before this was a State Department concert and before the concert some some guy came on with this instrument it's kind of a sort of a primitive kithara it's a okay. you know sort of like looking like what would originally have been a turtle you know thing sure. with a skin on top and some strings coming out okay. of it and yeah, yeah. two posts coming out and a thing across the top okay so he comes waltzing on the stage, holding this thing and playing it, and then presented it to me and said, our present to you, our wonderful lady from far away, and so forth and so forth. <laughs> so it's heavy as lead. It's like, you know, probably 20 pounds worth of, of wood and stuff like that, and big. So uh, I, I presented it to the, you know, cultural affairs officer there. And I said, this is very kind and very lovely and I like it a lot, but what am I gonna do? I cannot take it with me on tour. I had to play all sorts of different places all over the place. I wasn't gonna be home for a good long while. I had all sorts of other concerts to play. I couldn't fit it in my suitcase. I couldn't drag it around. I said, just, you know, happy birthday. <laughs> well, this guy was determined he was gonna get it to me somehow or other. So he actually carried it in his arms all the way to Italy and tried to wrap it up there and send it from Italy wow. when he had to go to Italy for some reason. Right. <laughs> but it didn't work. It was too big or too heavy or too something Gosh. or other. And so he couldn't send it. So he brought it back to the Sudan. And then he had to go to his own home in California. So again, he's carrying this thing in his arms all the way to California <laughs> because on the way back from California to go to London where he had to go, He's going to have a stop over in New York City. Fantastic. So he, I don't know what he did with his own baggage, but anyway, he comes <laughs> in a taxi to my apartment in New York where I wasn't, of course, yeah. right? Oh, my. And he finds somebody around there who knows who I am and leaves this thing with them, goes back to his plane, goes to London. He's been doing nothing the whole past month but work on trying this problem for Alice Art's guitarist. He notices that there's a guitar concert gonna be in Oscar Gilia. It's gonna play okay. in London. He thinks I should go to that concert. He goes to the concert, he's halfway down the, the <laughs> row and he sees me oh sitting in gosh. the audience. 
Alice, hello. <laughs> I just left your oud in New York. Well, it isn't an oud. And I'm looking at him. He looks super familiar. I can't figure for the life of me who he is. And I think he figured out that I couldn't figure out for the life of me who he is. But anyway, so that's me in names. Tremendous. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm, I'm sure you met a few people during the time you were touring. <laughs> that was my consolation that I figured that they're there planning for my concert. They're looking at pictures of me. They're looking at me during the concert. They're figuring out where I'm staying. They're right. doing a lot of stuff with they me. They know I, you. Yeah. I see them for like one day yeah. for, you know, various different times. And I'm totally distracted with, you know, trying to play the concert, and right. trying to deal with whatever else is going on, which there always was. And, and so, you know, I, I don't have the full dose of, of them that they got of me. And then, of course, you know, I'm terrible at names. I've always been terrible at names. <laughs> so that doesn't help. But I'm not one of these people that remembers everybody that I ever right. met. I, I, I have the same problem The way myself. politicians yeah. do somehow. I don't know. <laughs> Well, yeah. I think it's probably a learned skill. I think, you know, it's, it's like anything else. You learn a little. Well, they say you got to say that. the name and look at them and figure out something right. or other. But usually I'm in too much of a hurry or something to, to do that. Or I figure out something and then I can't remember what the something was that I figured out. I did that just yesterday with somebody or other, some name that I wanted to remember. And I, I remembered this clever way of remembering what it was. And then I couldn't remember what the clever way was. <laughs> So I still didn't. <laughs> yes, this sounds very familiar to me. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I, I have to tell you that uh, I talked to Peter Danner, and, oh, and yeah. your name came up um, as 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 did Claire's Claire Callahan, who's a yeah, very very dear friend of mine. I worked with her for for many mm -hmm. years, um, and and he said that uh, that talking to me for the podcast, he said, you know, this this reminds me of of you know sitting in a, in a bar with Alice Arts and Claire Kelly mm -hmm. and, and just talking about things casually, mm -hmm. after, you know, after concerts mm -hmm. and whatnot. And I thought, yeah. that, I thought that was, that was delightful. That was really, yeah. really great. So, and he also mentioned that, uh, you know, the, the early days of the GFA and, and how mm -hmm. he was active in that and you were active in that. And Claire Absolutely. Was active in that. Well, that's the um, guitarist I, cookbook, right? Yeah. Oh, that's right. Yeah, sure. Yeah. He, he <laughs> did all the sort of typesetting for that. And okay. I did the, the getting the, all the all the guitarists that I knew to send recipes. Yeah, I that's right. Yeah, I, I forgot yeah. about that. So, and I I remember, you know, I was I was very young in those days, but I remember seeing, um, you know, the, the the early early versions of of Soundboard and the and the, the newsletters and whatnot, mm -hmm. and seeing pictures pictures of all you at the, mm -hmm. at that time. So, yeah. um, but yeah, what what, what was, was that like? How how was what was that experience like? Well, they, they just sort of called me up and said, would I like to be, you know, chairman of the board or whatever? And I said, yeah, I guess so. And, <laughs> you know, then I was. And we'd have these board meetings, which we talked about as B-O-R-E-D rather than B-O-A-R-D. <laughs> and, uh, you know, we'd kind of get together and figure out stuff. And we, we did figure out a lot of stuff. It, some of it worked and some of it didn't work. I remember we, we spent quite a lot of time figuring out how guitar music ought to be notated and how harmonics ought to be notated and figured out really a good system where it would be understandable, yeah. which, you know, it often isn't. 
Right. I mean, I just encountered a piece just just now. It says Karma Octavos, you know, eight, and, right. and it doesn't tell you where he's supposed to play him or how he's supposed to play him. And their their notes on the strings where you would get them if they're open strings, and and you know, and they're not fingers on the fingers where you would you know. So anyway, right. who knows what they want? <laughs> so anyway, we we did figure out a system for that, but we might as well have just thrown it in the garbage can after we did it because <laughs> nobody paid any attention to it. So I remember our figuring out and figuring out where we were going to meet and when we would meet and what we would do and all this kind of stuff. And they were fun. And I did meet a lot of really fun people. Yeah. And I was always dragging around a big bag of stuff at that point. And I remember at one point I had a, this was Peter Danner's joke. I had my, my bag said New York Public Library on it. Okay. And then I had all these things. And and I, I handed to him to put over someplace or other. He said, yeah, and all its stacks, too. And <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's great. So, um, <laughs> and, yeah, you know, so when you look at the organization now and how it's grown and everything that, 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 that it's doing now, I mean, yeah, how, how do you doing, feel about that? Yeah. They're doing good stuff. That's good. Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah. yeah. But you... You guys started that, though. You know, that's, yeah. that's you should be yeah. very proud. I think. And then the 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 uh, competition that was good. Yeah. And that, Wait, did you have a hand in the, in the, the beginnings of of all of that as well? Yeah, I think yeah. so. I think so. I mean, I don't remember too much. <laughs> again, I was running around so so hard doing all this other stuff. Sure. But, but yeah, sure. I certainly I mean, went to all of their, you know, the the yearly the festival yeah. meeting, whatever they were. And, uh, wow. Yeah. Well, we're, we're we're very fortunate to have had you do that for us and the, the community and, and all of that. And I, I just think, you know, at that time, so that was the GFA started in seventy two or seventy four. Is that, that sounds probably around, around something there? like I mean, around there? A, well, there I mean, there had been somebody else. I wasn't right at the very beginning because okay. I they they called me up and said, "Would I like to be chairman of the board?" And I think somebody else had been doing it before right. that. Okay. And so I'm pretty sure that I wasn't the first. I was like the second person or something like that. Yeah, I just, I just think about, you know, just at that time, what a what a lot of work that must have been and, and how fortunate we are that... Uh, well, and good that, that they have that archive too, because that benefited right. me tremendously. I found out about Mertz and, and I was in Europe at the time and I, I called up to say, you know, hey, I want all the Mertz and... And, and it was there waiting at my apartment when I got home. Amazing. But I, I figured out I'd called them at like, you know, what it was there three in the morning or something like that without figuring that out. <laughs> somebody from Finland did that to me, though, too. They called me up at like three in the morning, thinking it was three in the afternoon or something like that. So it happens. Yeah. Wow. Well, that, that's... That... What what a great number of stories you have. So, well, I, I really, really you do accumulate stories for sure. <laughs> is there oh, is there anything else we should talk about? I, I don't think so. <laughs> uh, I think we pretty well pretty well covered it. Oh well, I got another story that uh, I, I got from Australia. Okay. But uh, in Australia, Sergio had, had toured there first. And he told me about an agent there and told them about me, I think. And I think that's how I ended up 
uh, touring Australia the first time, or maybe it was a State Department thing and this was the second time, I don't remember. But anyway, I did stay with this agent and his, his you know, um, his wife, the, the family there. And they had a very fancy hi-fi system and everybody in Sydney knew them. And they had a daughter. And the story is about when the daughter was about five or something, because they were very much people in the, in the whole of musical society in Sydney. So that meant that they knew Richard and they knew, you know, they, they knew everybody and had them over to dinner and so forth and so on. So this little kid was, um, you know, meeting all these people. And so she, they were going to the opera all the time and telling about how wonderful it was. And the little kid was like, well, I want to go too. I want to go too. I want to go too. So they figured, well, maybe we take a chance. We get a seat way on the top of the balcony. And, you know, so we can beat it if we have to in a hurry. And so they, they take the kid. And it's one of these operas where the heroine dies at the end, so that she's there on the stage expiring. Right. And the little kid is getting very upset because this is her friend who's been over to dinner at their house many times, and she's dying. And, oh, and no. so the mother bent over and said, it's okay. She doesn't really die. You'll see at the end, she's, she's okay. So at the end, of course, she's bowing. Everything's fine, wonderful, okay. So the kid was just entranced by this. Oh, I want to go again. I want to go again. I want to go again. Mara was wonderful. And she'd been like a mouse, very well behaved and everything the whole time. We figured, okay, we get front row center seats and we go back. Okay, so same opera. Goes as planned. <laughs> kid is behaving beautifully. Get to where the heroine is dying on the stage. Before they could figure out what's going on, the little kid jumps up on the on the seat, facing the whole Sydney Opera House, and said, "It's all right. She doesn't really die." Oh my gosh! Fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> That's wonderful. <laughs> I mean, what a what a story! I I did not of course witness it, but I heard about it, and probably everybody in Sydney who had anything to do with yep. music knew about it. <laughs> <laughs> One day at the Sydney Opera House. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah. Well, Alice, I, th I think we can wrap it up. I really appreciate okay. your time and, and, okay. and, and hearing all. all these Not wonderful all. stories. And, and thank you so much for, for everything you've done for the guitar world. And, and uh, you know, no it's, 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 it's really an honor to speak with you. And, oh, and it, thank it, you very it's much. been a delight. I hope we can it's meet face fun. to face one day. Absolutely. I hope so too. Thank you. Okay, thank you so much. This is Carl Woolwind of Columbus Classical Guitar. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Guitar on My Knee podcast. For more information and past episodes, please visit columbusclassicalguitar.com or Carl Woolwind Guitarist on Facebook.